Hi, this is Graham. Just a brief word before we start the show. This podcast is part of our extensive lockdown collection, shows we recorded during that crazy period, which we have yet to publish. I'm telling you that in advance because at the time of recording, Licorice Pizza had not been released, nor had its title been decided on. That's why our mention of that film in the show that follows seems light on plot details. So Jeff goes all tabloid and manages to get most of the facts wrong. If you want to know what we really thought of Licorice Pizza, please check out our review in episode 196. Having set the context, please settle back and enjoy our Paul Thomas Anderson retrospective. Over to you, Jeff. We are back with another of Phil Foster's, a.k.a. Phil the Bear's, excellent director retrospectives. This is where Phil watches all the films of his subject in order and then writes a fascinating threaded piece about the work of said director. Today, we're going to be talking about the talent that is Paul Thomas Anderson. And, especially for this podcast, our own carry-on streaming Deck has joined us. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good, thanks very much. Very well, thank you. Excellent. You looking forward to this? I am, actually. One of my favourite directors, this guy. I am. Now, along with Phil and Deck, we have regulars who I thought we could assign Paul Thomas Anderson roles to. <laughs> there is Graham, or a.k.a. Daniel Plainview. Oh, God. And, of course, <laughs> there's Neil, a.k.a. Dirk Diggler. Guys, <laughs> Welcome. I wondered who was going to be Dirk. <laughs> yeah, who else? <laughs> uh, now, Paul Thomas Anderson is without doubt a major talent and one who seems to be outside of the studio system. He makes what he wants to make, when he wants to make it, and it is his cut or no cut. In fact, there is an argument to be made, and we'll discuss it shortly, that this man is the new Stanley Kubrick. He gets away with a lot because he attracts major talent, is almost always critically lauded, and gets the awards. But before we go into detail, Phil, where can people find your fascinating article? On philthebearblog.com. I've got a little tab along the top, so if you click on features, you can see all of my retrospectives. Brilliant. Neil? So, first question, is Paul Thomas Anderson the new Stanley Kubrick, which means he does have an unprecedented freedom to make whatever he wants and always has final cut fill. So I think in terms of being able to make whatever he wants um, in terms of final cut, I don't think he's any different from the likes of Scorsese, Fincher, Christopher Nolan, etc. And I think one of the reasons for that is all of his films, uh, when you look at the budgets, I don't think he's made a film that's cost more than $40 million. So... In terms of that sort of final cut, if you can bring your film in for under $40 million, I think you probably can do what you want and present back what you want. Yeah, He, he did have an argument with the producers with his first film in terms of getting final cut, and he was a bit sneaky in terms of submitting it, I think it was to Cannes, in his version of the cut, just so that he could get some people to say it was good and then go back to them and say... I want that version now. But in terms of directors these days, I was thinking, is it only really in the big sort of cinematic universes that uh, the studios have a bigger say? 
Because if you think of the Star Wars universes and the Marvel universes, they're kind of products created by a, a quorum. Whereas when you're a director with a $40 million movie, you kind of get to do what you want. Deck. I think he was lucky. Um, I think the timing, and he said this himself, um, he said that uh, Pulp Fiction opened a lot of doors for him, proved that uh, an ensemble type, reasonably low budget film could make a studio a lot of money. And I think he was in the right place at the right time. Boogie Nights was very successful. And I think from then onwards, people trusted him. And so far, he hasn't let them down. So I think they always remember, you know, success. And as long as he keeps delivering success, I think they'll keep letting him do what he wants to do. Um, Graham? I I think he is very Kubrick-like. His characters are a bit more warm and open than Kubrick tended to get out of his actors. His pace of producing films is very slow, very deliberate. There's usually two or three years, maybe in some cases five years between films. So he thinks and and he takes his time about it. But when you look at the end result, wow, (laughs) it's really quite stunning. Even some of the films I don't like, I appreciate them artistically because they are so well put together. Jeff? I do, and I've got to take a different tack to what Graham's taken there. I I think, yeah, he's, he's got the talent. I think he does to do a fair number of takes as well. But also, I think as his career's got on, he's got more and more unemotional in the way he presents things. And I'm not saying that as a, as a negative. Phantom Thread, for example, and Punch Drunk Love are two examples that have virtually no emotion in it. They're technically brilliant, but emotionless. Hmm. So I think, yeah, he's a lot like Kubrick. Disagree. You disagree, Phil? Yeah, I mean, I think you've just named the two films that he's done that are firmly focused on sort of relationships and and the love between two people. And it's interesting to hear you say that you think they're emotionless. I think they're emotionally sterile, I, I would say, yeah. Both films I was absorbed in, but I didn't have that, that frisson, if you like, of emotion. Okay, we'll come back to those films, and I'm sure that that will make for an interesting discussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Paul Thomas Anderson is certainly a smart guy dropping out of college to make his first film as he felt film school was set work was uh, homework or a chore. Do you think more filmmakers should follow this route? Deck? I think you need a mixture of both. I think some people will come through film college, be taught their craft and move on from there. And other will just work themselves independently and just do it the hard way. I, I don't think there's one route that suits anyone. I think it's good for the industry that you have both really. There's a bit of luck involved as well, I think. Yeah, it seemed to work for him. Uh, Jeff? When you say luck, or is it talent? You know, I mean, some oh, people... sure, 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 talent. But yes, sometimes, yeah, some there's very talented people who maybe don't get the breaks. Yeah. Yeah, there are some people who benefit from working within the lines and get that confidence and go out and, you know, make um, great movies. And other people that seemed to be a step ahead of it. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson was a step ahead of it. You know, he, I think he learned his craft more in the school of life than in school. And that shows in a lot of his films. Phil? Well, I'm definitely not qualified to answer because I'm not a filmmaker. <laughs> but I think, I think Dex said it. I think everyone's got different learning styles and skill sets. Yeah. So I think they need to do what works for them. So I think he's a brilliant filmmaker and whatever it is that he did you know, off of his own back to learn how to do these things has worked. 
I think it's interesting that both uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino basically did the same thing. They just learned from watching films they loved. Um, and they've both you know, proved very successful from it. But I'm sure there are lots of people that haven't. But yeah. That's that's a good point, Dick. Quentin Tarantino worked up the hard way. You know, he didn't have his family didn't have money. He worked in a video shop, did all sorts of things. I don't know about Paul Thomas Anderson. Phil, does he come from a, a, a rich background? I, I don't actually know. He, he seems quite private, actually, in terms of his life, both before and after. You know, so even the example of sort of we know that he's married to Mayor Rudolph and has got kids, but you know that's it. His personal life is his own, and he doesn't sort of advertise that. I think if you look at um, his films, though, I'd imagine his childhood wasn't that happy. If you go on the fact that if nearly every film he's written comes from a broken family home, pretty much. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the damaged individuals and trying to find your own family is a, is a common theme. That's interesting. Yeah. So just to prove I'm right about being lucky, the, the director dropped out of college to make his short film Cigarettes and Coffee, which he funded by gambling winnings. I'm not going to ask whether that's the right way to go. There is a relationship between that short and his first feature film, Hard Eight. What is it, Phil? So Cigarettes and Coffee essentially evolved into Hard Eight. Both star Philip Baker Hall and both involve Philip Baker Hall's character meeting a man at a diner and discussing some issues over cigarettes and coffee. Both feature gambling. Anderson actually wanted Hard Eight to be called Cigarettes and Coffee as well. But in his battle to get Final Cut, he um, foregoed the, the option of getting his title the people putting up the money decided that Hard Eight was the much more um, exciting title. And do any of you know what it means? No, Dick probably does. He's seen it. No, I've seen it. I, I don't really know what it means. But I heard as well that in some countries it was called Sydney. Yeah, so that's that's another name that he wa- he he wanted. That was his second choice, which is the name of Philip Baker Hall's character. Um, there's some interesting, fun fact about Philip Baker Hall's character as well in it. So a hard eight, by the way, is in the gambling game Craps, which features in the film. A hard eight is a bet where you bet to get the number eight by getting two fours with your dice, which is the hard eight as opposed to getting a five and a three or two and a six or something like that. Sydney, which is the character that Philip Baker Hall plays, is also the name of a character that Philip Baker Hall plays in Midnight Run, starring Robert De Niro. And there's rumours that Anderson loved that film and decided that this is that character, what would happen to him, you know, 10, 20 years after that film. So obviously it's not canon and because he's, he doesn't own the rights to that, but that's the sort of story about that particular character and his name. Ah. Is it worth seeing? I think it's really good. It's a character study of Baker Hall's character, Sydney. He has a an ulterior motive and a secret to, to befriending this character. And you kind of learn about why that is over the course of the film. And it's just got three really good central performances from Baker Hall himself, John C. Riley, and Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm not sure how many of you have seen it. I I think that some people might find it quite slow paced, but I just found it really engrossing and really interesting. Mm. What did you think, Deck? I thought if you love Paul Thomas Anderson, you'll love Hard Eight. If you're not sure, it's probably going to fall into a similar camp. What I liked about it, 
having only watched it recently, is you can see Paul Thomas Anderson's style in its infancy, but you can see it there right from the word go. So it isn't like he's taken years to build up this style. It's there in the first film. Amazing. I mean, no one can question his technical ability and he proves it right from the word go. Hmm. And even in cigarettes and coffee, it's there. So he's obviously had this vision right from the word go. Yeah, cool. Now, Jeff, have you seen it? No, I haven't. No, it's it's uh, on my list to watch. Graham? I have actually got it on my download queue at the minute. So I, ah. After watching uh, Inherent Vice, I was just so blown away by that this week that I just thought, right, I'm getting a few more of these. So I got Hard Eight and Punch Drunk Love. Ah, I'm going to cool. watch all of those. I think it's very interesting what we were saying about, you know, he, he dropped out of film school and all of that. It just makes me wonder, is he like Tarantino? Because there's, to me, Tarantino watches films in a very strange way. I watch films for entertainment and to teach me something and to just for enjoyment. I think Paul Thomas Anderson watches other people's films with a, a really in-depth technical view of how did he set that up and how did that work and what was important about that camera shot and why is that person there and this person here and after watching Inherent Vice the interplay between the characters and the, the way the camera travels and all of the crazy stuff that's going on and it all tends to make sense I just thought here's a man who watches films in a very different way than I do and I was fascinated I'm going to have a hell of a week coming up I'm going to watch all of these now and just have a have a look at all the strange things he does I'm really looking forward to it I mean what you just described sounds like Martin Scorsese have you ever seen any of the documentaries where Scorsese talks about some of the films that he loves or watched as a youngster because what you just described sounds like that that sort of absolute passion for film but not just the stories but the technicality of them as well doesn't that explain the, the difference between the backgrounds between tarantino and paul thomas Anderson? i mean tarantino watched it in videos where he watched a lot of trashy films he watched a lot of what you'd find in video stores a lot of really low budget badly made stuff but some of it he found enjoyable and that's the stuff he wanted to make that he got enjoyment out of whereas i find paul thomas Anderson, if you listen to his interviews he was influenced by scorsese and robert altman and uh Jonathan Demi and everything and people that have come from a more technical background so he in his youth he was he had a different love of film than Tarantino did both very valuable I think because they're both sifting through things to find nuggets uh, of gold that they can then use in their own film so Tarantino watched thousands of hours of crap and found interesting little bits in them and then he puts them in his own film so Oriental cinema's crap to you then, Graham? Is that... No, but... Yeah. Yeah. Racist, isn't it? <laughs> it's low budget, not technically well shot, but... Okay, you no, know. that's fair enough. I was yeah. worried where Graham was going. I thought I might have to rein him in. <laughs> Can you imagine watching Asian cinema, not B films, but sort of C-level films, which are just for a tiny uh, subculture in, in somewhere in Asia? Mm-hmm, yeah. And... Yet Tarantino picks pieces out of these that he uses in his own films. That's real genius there. Great artists steal, as Picasso said. You know, and hmm. Tarantino does. We'll come back to Tarantino in a moment. Now, after Hard Eight comes, for my money, Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpiece. 
It is my favourite of his films. It's a stunning recreation of a time and place and the opening of Boogie Nights using the emotions track Best of My Love is just breathtaking. It's simply brilliant. And, and clearly he was influenced by the canon and the mastery that was Thank God It's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> thoughts on this movie and its coverage of the pre-AIDS porn industry starring some of the porn actors themselves. Phil? So lots lots of thoughts. I mean the first thing I was going to say is I know you've, you this is your favourite Anderson film but I actually think there's four other films that are better than this in, in Anderson's sort of canon so I don't have it quite as high up there on my list in terms of his films. But the biggest thing that struck me when I re-watched this is that I've seen this film probably about four times now. And when I first saw it, I was quite young um, and now I'm not so young. But when I first saw it, I kind of saw it as a film about excess and enjoyment and, and things kind of spiraling out when you just you know went over the top. Whereas now I can watch it and I see actually it's it's less about the porn industry and more about a group of really troubled individuals who are trying to form their own family from the the careers that they've chosen. And it's more about, you know, those damaged individuals and trying to sort of repair themselves through that sort of second family than it is necessarily about the industry. I mean, obviously it is, but that's just kind of the backdrop to this story about family. And the other thing I was going to say, we were talking about his technical brilliance and you know his camera moves and whip pans and all the rest of it. But I think that this film was kind of the height of his bravura camera shots that are sort of showing how great he was. And there's there's two particular ones in this film, and, and, and you mentioned one. So the, the opening one, where it starts outside um, following a car on the road, and it follows that car, pulls up to a club, they go into a club, and it's literally just one shot, and it introduces you to every single major character in the film, of which there are many, and it goes from outside to inside to all these characters on the dance floor, sitting down into the kitchens, etc., etc. It's all kind of you know Martin Scorsese doing the Goodfellas shot where they go into the, the nightclub, that kind of thing. And there's another one at a party um, about midway through. It's like a pool party. And he actually does a similar thing where the camera roves around the party, meeting lots of different characters to the point that one of the characters it follows dives into a pool, swims underwater, camera follows, jumps out, and then starts talking to somebody whilst, you know, water's running down the camera kind of thing. They're all kind of like amazing jaw-dropping things. And this is the one where I kind of see that as... You know, so he did his sort of lower budget debut and now he had a little bit more money, a little bit more time. He wanted to make his proper calling card. And actually since then, I feel like he's kind of relaxed back from that over the top showiness to actually just focusing more on the story and the characters. Whereas this was a bit more style over substance. Before I pass it on, I just want to quickly pick up on that point you're saying about the porn industry i mean what fascinated me is you had the pre-aids so you had the 1970s and it was fun and it was lively and then at that moment when 1979 become 1980 literally that moment 
it turns nasty. I just thought that was a stunning moment. You go into the second half of the film, if you like, and it's almost a different film, but it just holds together so well. I felt that the story structure there kind of followed the Goodfellas story structure. I'm not sure if Good Goodfellas was 80s to 90s, I think, but it was certainly cocaine was like the sort of the flipping point there. And I felt that that scene that you're on about, they actually literally do do the New Year's Eve party, don't they? And that's like kind of the scene where it flips over. I think it's a good film. And there's some very interesting stories about the making of it. I just don't think it's his best. I think it's his showiest, certainly. It's probably why I loved it. Graham? Again, I loved this film, but it was, for me, very much like what Phil was saying. It's damaged individuals trying to get some sort of centre to their lives, some sort of steadiness or some sort of point in their lives where things will calm down. But they're in an industry that is in constant flux and constant change. And they're almost in a maelstrom and they're trying to hold on to each other and it just fractures. And then one of them does something stupid and the whole thing cascades out of control. And that point where it flips and becomes very hard edge. And after watching Paul Thomas Anderson again this week, I'm going to go back and look at that again because I think I missed a lot of stuff in Boogie Nights because I was a bit dazzled how vibrant it was at the time and I think I need to step back and just look at what is this guy trying to say well you remember what you said about Mank you had to stop it and then go watch Citizen Kane well I suggest before Boogie Nights watch Thank God It's Friday (laughs) (laughs) Dick likewise I agree with what's been said previously I think the word surrogate family is going to come up every time we talk about a Paul Thomas Anderson film there's definitely a theme but I think Phil spot on I mean he got noticed with his hard eight and studio gave him a bit of cash and you know you listen to interviews and he says he wanted to make this his calling card and he wanted the opening scene to be showing off he wanted to show in that first four minutes what he could do and he did he's got dutch tilts and pull-ins and all the other tricks that he carries on using he's got them all in the start of the film because he wants people to stand up and take notice of him so it is a bit showy off but i like jeff this is one of my favorite it's not quite my number one, but I think it's probably my second favourite Paul Thomas Anderson film because I love ensemble casts. I love that type of film. He was heavily influenced by Robert Altman's Nashville and I do enjoy stories where there's lots of cast and it interweaves and their paths cross at different times. And I was too young to remember in the 70s. I was around, but I was too young to remember. It seems to sum up perfectly, you know, the music and the colour and all the things that Paul Thomas Anderson brings to films, all that technical depth all that sound and production design and everything is all shown off in this film the other interesting thing as well is this is the first film he made with robert elswit they went on to work brilliantly together and i'd be interested to know how much robert elswit is an influence on paul thomas anderson and vice versa what role did he play in this he was a cinematographer right you know when i was finding out which films he was a cinematographer on they're my favourite Paul Thomas Anderson films. It obviously worked on me because when he's not the cinematographer, I don't enjoy the Paul Thomas Anderson films as much. Like when we did the feature on Tarantino, when we say bad things about any of these films, they're still, all of them are really good films. It's just we're, we're having to be critical about some of them because we're talking about the whole set. But you know, even a bad Paul Thomas Anderson film is a good film. So Boogie Nights to me was exactly what Phil said. It's a calling card and he is showing off. Also, it's done six of his eight films, so it's not that bad if you if you don't like the ones that he's not done, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay, now we mentioned Tarantino earlier, and, and one of the things certainly struck me when I first saw Boogie Nights is how like Pulp Fiction it is in terms of character um, and the way everything interconnects. I do take your point about, you know, fractured families, but I, I think this is far better than anything that Tarantino has done. Jeez. So I'm just throwing that out there, and I'm waiting for the hand grenades to come back, so I'll start with you first, Dick. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I totally disagree with you, Jeff. I don't know whether Phil will, but I do. And this will come out as we talk more about the other films. I just find, even though technically Paul Thomas Anders films are fantastic, in terms of enjoyment and story, I don't think they are as enjoyable. And I've proved this to myself by... I've very rarely watch a Paul Thomas Anderson film twice. I'll watch it once. I'll find it sometimes quite harrowing and traumatic because of the subject matter, you know, visually stunning and, and technically brilliant, but I don't want to go back and watch it again, really. Whereas Tarantino, you can stick on a Tarantino film or if I walk into a room and it's on, I want to watch the rest of it. I find he writes characters probably not as deep as Paul Thomas Anderson, but he, I think he writes a better story. Paul Thomas Anderson has admitted he's an actor's filmmaker, you know, and it's proved by the most of his films win acting awards. But sometimes that to me is at the detriment of the actual story. It is a love-hate thing. I mean, I know this. I mean, there are other films that people love that I don't like that are very character-based. I just like a bit more to it. I like a bit more of a story rather than just following okay. the life of a character. No, no, fair enough. So Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson. Phil, I'm sure you'll agree with me. <laughs> um, no, I mean ever the optimist, Jeff. So, well, I don't think the Boogie Nights is better than everything that Tarantino's done. I think there's four Anderson films that are better. So, if I think the fifth best Anderson film is better than all than Tarantino, I think I might be mad. Right? There are those sort of facets to it that are very similar. So, his use of music in Boogie Nights is very similar to the way Tarantino uses music. And he's kind of tried to revive a fading, ageing star in Burt Reynolds in the same way that Tarantino kind of did for John Travolta and Robert Forster. You could easily name three or four Tarantino films that I think I'd prefer over this one to the point that Deck was making just randomly. Uh, I finished watching a different film the other night, turned it off, and Jackie Brown was about 30 minutes in on Sky Cinema, and I carried on watching that. So, you know... <laughs> Do you think that's a fair comment that he tried to revive a fading actor's career? Don't you think that these actors that Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson find are really good? Oh, yeah. And all yeah. is give them a good script. And everybody goes, oh, he's bloody brilliant. I think we're gonna, we sh we should at least talk about the Burt Reynolds yes. story at some point. I think that's the plan, Jeff. Yeah, no, I mean, no, go, go for it now, Phil. I mean, he had a horrible time making this film and didn't like it till he was nominated for an Oscar, but... Yeah, you go for the story, Phil. My name is Jack. Eddie. Eddie Adams. Eddie Adams from Torrance. Yep. Jack Warner, filmmaker. Really? Yeah. I make uh, adult films, exotic pictures. I know who you are. I read about you in a magazine. Inside Amber, Amanda's Ride. You made those, right? Right. Those are great. So now you know I'm not full of doggy doo doo. <laughs> yeah. Want to come back to the table and, uh, you know, have a drink? So Burt Reynolds is just hated everything about this film. So he apparently nearly got into a fight with Anderson on set. And when he was asked about this, 
he was asked if he wanted to punch Anderson in the face. And he said, no, I didn't say that. I said I wanted to punch him. There was some tensions and stuff. Well, from what I've read about it, Reynolds was vocal about the fact that he apparently turned the film down seven times before his agent persuaded him to do it. He then sacked his agent after he made the film. And he said that Anderson was a young kid who was full of himself and thought he was the dog's box, but he was just copying everything else. And he didn't enjoy himself. And then, of course, he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor, which he lost to Robin Williams for Goodwill Hunting, partly because part of the way that you win an Oscar is your campaign and schmoozing and all the rest of it. But he'd spent the months prior to that saying how much he hated making the film and that sacking his agent and saying that he wanted to punch Anderson. So it's a bit of an odd one, really. But Anderson got a phenomenal performance out of him. He did, and he also offered Reynolds a role in Magnolia, which was his next film, and uh, Reynolds promptly turned him down. But do you, do you think part of this as well is, I mean, Reynolds struggled in his career. I mean, he was there from the early 60s. You know, it wasn't until the early 70s that he started making a name for himself. He wasn't able to get into directing and have the clout to do it until later on in the 70s. So he struggled for everything he wanted to do, whereas... Paul Thomas Anderson comes along, does things his way, and he has that clout in an early age. I would say there's an element of jealousy there. And the other thing as well, Phil, I mean, I know it has one of your favourite songs, Feel the Heat. (laughs) Uh, The Transformers version is much better, though. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In case anyone's not heard that show, Transformers, the animated movie, amazing. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. None of that Michael Bay stuff, eh, Neil? Uh, I've got to be honest, Michael Bay wins it for me. Now, Phil, around this time, Mr. Anderson directed many music videos. And it couldn't have just been for the money, because he's still making them today. Why do you think this side industry come about? And what, in your opinion, is the best one he's made? So I love his music videos. I think partly because I share a similar music taste to him. Hands down, the best is Anima, which is Tom York's short film. It's available on Netflix if you want to watch it. It's it's amazing. So it's three songs from Tom York's uh, current album, and he's made it into a short film that's kind of like a dystopian 1984 type thing. Why does he make them? I, I just think he loves music. I think he likes that side of things. He only makes music videos for artists that he has a relationship with. So... I think the first one that he made was with Michael Penn, who did the score for his first two films. He's done a number for Fiona Apple, who was his partner for a number of years. He's done quite a few for Radiohead and Tom York. Johnny Greenwood, of course, has done his scores for the sort of second half of his film career. Johnny Greenwood is a member of Radiohead, so obviously he's got that connection there. And his current favourites are a band called Haim, who love Los Angeles as much as he seems to. And I think there's probably a connection there. And I think we'll probably talk about it later. But one of the members of that band is going to be in his new film whenever that comes out, whether it's this year or next year. Mm. So I think, you know, he clearly loves music. Um, He gets to experiment in them as well, actually. So I said that he's he's not being as showy after Boogie Nights. But actually, if you watch his music videos, he gets to try lots of weird, interesting things. And because they're kind of two and a half minutes, three minutes, you know, he can do something weird and different. And maybe it checks off that sort of 
experimental side for him, you know, that he can focus, you know, more on the story and the characters in his films and do something a bit intriguing in his music videos. You know, another one that I really like is Daydreaming, which is a Radiohead song, probably one of my favourite Radiohead songs. I'm a big fan. I might have mentioned it before. Greatest band ever. It's not a cover version of the Monkey song, is it? No. Oh, no. God. Um, uh, so it's a really interesting video, actually, in terms of the way that it's filmed and the way that it kind of has a story hidden kind of behind and in, in, in it. If you Google it, somebody has done a um, video essay on the hidden kind of secrets within the video. And you can kind of see in there that all the effort and behind the scenes of trying to tell a story that most people, I would say 95% of the people watching that video, they're never going to see it or, or read into it. Um, but it's all there. And I just think it maybe just scratches that um, creative itch for him. What about you, Dick? Have you watched any of these music videos? Yeah, I've spent most of this week watching them, to be honest. Yeah, fairly enjoyable. I'm not a fan of much of the music um, that he makes videos for. That's outrageous. <laughs> no, I'm not I'm not anti it. It's just not, not my first choice. But he actually makes them more appealing. I'd rather watch the music videos than just listen to the music. So he adds to it. I was going to mention Daydreaming because out of the ones I watched, that was the one that I enjoyed the most. And it's fascinating. It's almost, as you said, Phil, he's, it's almost like he's trying stuff because by watching them after I'd seen you know, the majority of his films, you can see where he's practiced stuff and then you, can, you can't fail to see it in the films. I think he's got a fascination with doors. After watching Daydreaming, everything I seem to watch, he seems to involve lots of characters going through doors. But um, anyway, maybe that's just me. Maybe I've watched too many this week. And yeah, I thought they were very good very stylistic and he's trying stuff and, and very enjoyable it's almost like he's it's a film but more intense because it's obviously only two three minutes long so it's, it's like he's ramping up everything to really show off or practice or whatever you want to call it but yeah i think that's probably why he does it excellent graham neil have you watched any of them yep i've watched them all and i agree obviously huge radiohead fan i thought that uh tom york okay uh, the last one he did for Netflix was brilliant. Um, some some very, very bizarre setups in that, especially where he's got people climbing up inclines and things, and he seems to have control of the pitch of the incline that they're trying to climb up. It's just really, really different. I'm, I'm amazed uh, and pleased that he's working with Hein three girl band from LA that I just absolutely love. In fact, I was listening to them this afternoon. Their first album, if I'm feeling a bit down and you want to make yourself feel better, stick their first album on it, just put a smile on your face. I was listening to some of their live stuff on uh, YouTube. Amazing band live. So I can't wait to see what he's going to do with them. If it was one of their music videos in the last two years, I suspect he was involved. Okay, right. Well, let's go back to the world of film. And we're going to move on to the film that Phil made a big impression on you. And I know you started your piece about Paul Thomas Anderson with this film, Magnolia. So what was it that first got your interest and what is it you really like about the film? I used to work in the cinema when I was a teenager. In 1999, over our foyer uh, video screens, which was probably about 20 video screens, over the course of a 10-hour shift, for about three weeks, I would see the Magnolia trailer probably every 10, 15 minutes. And it was just amazing. Um, it just caught my attention completely. So bear in mind, I'd, I'd not seen 
um, Hard Eight or Boogie Nights at that point. I'd never seen a Paul Thomas Anderson film. And the trailer was a series of his whip pans that he does, the, the sort of calling card of his, where camera sort of whip pans to the a character from the film who introduces themselves. They literally just would say, hi, I'm, and then just say their character name. And there'd be another whip pan to another character. And, and obviously Magnolia, I think, has got eight central characters. I'm Stanley Spector. And the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Donnie Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son, the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. The caretaker. Hello! I'm Phil Parma. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. And this will all make sense in the end. And that was the entire video, as I recall it. It was literally just whip pans of character. They introduced themselves. And then it would kind of have the Magnolia title come up and a bit of a voiceover about it being, you know, stranger things can happen or, or whatever that that sort of tagline for the film was. I don't know why. It just completely captivated me because I didn't know anything about the film the trailer didn't tell me anything about the film other than to introduce to me who the characters were going to be. Can you imagine that in the film these days? You see a trailer that doesn't tell you the entire plot almost beat for beat. <laughs> That's, that'd be a rarity. And when I got to see it, I, ha- I actually had to um, I had to go out of town to see it because my six-screen multiplex didn't get it. I don't think he was particularly a big director at that point. So I had to go and watch it at a different cinema but I just fell in love with it. It's like this sprawling three-hour film that was just a director who knew exactly what he wanted to do. You could kind of tell that he had the complete confidence of how he wanted to present it, even in its weirdness and over-the-topness. And I just kind of, at that point, as with a lot of other directors we've talked about, I just thought I have to watch everything that this guy's done um, because I just loved it. Neil, have you seen it? No, I haven't. This is the one I regret. No, number of times it's come up, and I've thought, yes, now I've got to watch this, and I just think, oh, I'm not in the mood, and just left it, and I really regret that. This, but this is the one I want to see. Okay, Deck. Oh, this is my favourite film. This is by hands my favourite film. I love Magnolia. Um, it is the one film that I can of his that I can probably watch again and again. I don't know. I just think it deals with chance versus fate again, families and and how your past influences who you are now and even if it's you know not a great past like most of his characters it it still makes you who you are and if you didn't have that past you wouldn't be who you were and I just think that's all fascinating I think that's that's where we all come from we you know without realizing it all our traits and everything all come from our background you can't dwell on it and you can't you've got to live in the moment so you've got to you know get over the past or reconcile with it which is what uh, most of his characters do in his films um but i just think it's fascinating and i think and i know a lot of people don't like it especially because of the the frog thing i don't know i i just think if you suspend belief and everything i think it's amazing i think the way it's all happening in the is it in the same street or the same t- i can't remember it's, i think it's on the same street that all these characters are events intertwine and everything i think it's just i think it's brilliant it's the production company that ties them all together isn't it it's it's almost like that that rosebud moment it's eight characters who are all linked over one day 
for those people who don't like it, I, th- I think you're right, Deck. It's the frog thing is peculiar, and um, but he leans into it. The cast deciding to stop the film about three quarters of the way through to sing a song. People might find that crazy. I just thought it was genius. There's two kind of recurring lines in it, and it says it at the top of the film. So it says it has a, w- a little prologue at the beginning where it talks about peculiar events. And it says, if this was in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. And it tells you right at the top, you know, you have to suspend disbelief. You have to let, you have to go with this and, you know, let the the weird complexity sort of just wash over you. And you're right. I think the line that is recurring throughout that is to your point, Deck, is um, you may be through with the past, but the past ain't through with you. Um, and that's exactly what the film's about. Graham. I only downloaded this one today, so I haven't watched it yet. And I just wonder, how does he get people of, you know, the quality of Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley? None of his films cost more than forty million to make, so these people want to work with him. Philip Seymour Hoffman's been in five of his films, and I think Julianne Moore's been in a couple. People just want to work with him. He's definitely a, an actor's director, isn't he? Definitely. And, you know, and, and Tom Cruise saw that and Tom Cruise, you know, contacted him and said, like, I want to be in one of your films because, you know, he knew that his acting career hasn't been respected that much and got nominated for this. And he brings out the best in everyone. I think that's because he gives them freedom and he gives them, you know, a big involvement in the film. Uh, and he obviously has a way of talking to actors and, you know, putting their arm around them or respecting them in a way that seems to work. This is very much a Marmite movie, and we've had that. People that like it and don't like it. I mean, I really do like it. I think it's an excellent film. And I recommend it to people who said after watching it, and I quote, it was the worst film ever, and never, ever recommend anything to us ever again. Now, uh, that was that was Sue Jones. Um, <laughs> She's never been indecisive, though, no, has she? No. <laughs> So I'm throwing this at Deck. Deck, what would you say to Sue to say, give it another go? Um, everyone's allowed their own opinion on films. Everyone's allowed. That's the beauty of the movies. We don't all agree, and Jeff is often the, the one that doesn't, but that's the whole beauty <laughs> of films. If we all like the same ones, it would be very boring. Uh, much like yes. music, it's the same, and, and art. It's, it's, you know, the beauty of those creative industries is you love the ones you love and you hate the ones you hate. And that's, that's beauty is the end in the eye of yeah, the beholder. That's what makes the whole industry so exciting and why I miss the cinema so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming Plaintive back. Cry. Let's move on to something of a rarity for me. It's an Adam Sandler film, which I actually like. Now in punch drunk love, he plays a character, which is not his normal aggressive persona. Although there are elements of it. Did his performance in that movie work for you, Phil? I think that what Paul Thomas Anderson's done, and I'm pretty certain he's talked about this in interviews and stuff, is he said, I think Adam Sandler films are really funny, but if we took one of his characters from his comedies, what would like that be like in kind of a more of a real life situation where, you know, what is it that fueled his anger and those sort of things? So I kind of feel like it is exactly like one of his crazy anger-driven characters from his crazy comedies. And what he's done is he's kind of picked that up and moved him into a real world, sort of a real world, because it's it's a bit heightened. And I think it really works. I, I do think that Punch Drunk Love is his hardest film to get your head around. If you've never seen any of his films, 
do not watch this first because it's not going to be like your entry level drug to poor Thomas Anderson. But up until Uncut Gems came out last year, this was by far and away Adam Sandler's best film performance. He's really good in it. And I think that it's a really interesting character study of somebody who has anxiety and social issues and doesn't know how to deal with them. There's this life boy thrown to him by this meat cute that he has with Emily Watson's character. Dick, what do you think of Adam Sandler's performance? I think it's excellent. They say that comedic actors can do drama really well, and I think this proves it, along with lots of other films as well. I think uh, in terms of timing and everything, uh, they've just got it. It is a hard watch, feels right. Whereas Uncut Gems is hard from a tension point of view to watch, but it but it is brilliant. It's exhausting. Yeah, it's because you're holding your breath all the way through. <laughs> this one is hard to watch because he does get the anxiety really well, and it does make you feel anxious watching this this guy. But I actually, even though I think his performance is good, I actually really like the use of sound in this film more than a lot of, not so much music, but sound. I love the way he uses sound to heighten anxiety moments. One of the best moments is when he when he goes to see his sisters and he ramps the the, the volume of them chatter, chattering and you know talking to him and everything right up. So his head is filled with this, you know, just ah, oh, just shut up, you know, just it's and it's really, really in your face. And it, and, and you can see he's getting really stressed and anxious. <laughs> and then when he smashes the glass, it's Deathly silence. You know, they've stopped. He, he literally turns the sound right down, and all you hear is the smashing glass, and then there's nothing. And I think, you know, and then there's another scene where he goes into the toilet and he smashes it. I mean, you listen to the sound. He he, the sound's distorted. So, you know, the the, the kicking of the door in it's distorted. It's not a normal kicking of a door in. He's he's like twisted with the sound. He's he's played with it to make the the the, the scene even more dramatic. And I think and and color as well. He uses color really well in this film. Adam Sanders' character wears a blue suit a lot of the time, which is one of the primary colours. And yet a lot of the time he's isolated, he's sat on his own, and it will be in a room that's that's all white or or, or all grey, and so that he, he looks very isolated, which he is. And I think this is a really good film to watch for a student or someone who wants to learn about how to use sound and colour and light and stuff in the making of film. That's why I like this film more from that point of view. It is one of my least enjoyable ones. I, I, I don't like it... F- so much from an enjoyment watching film but i think if you if you want it like an essay film i think this is a really good one to watch yeah there's there's lots of that so like he wears blue and um emily watson's character wears red i don't think you ever see them not wearing blue or red and they'll stick um adam sandler in the corner of the frame with just complete space around him to isolate him and make him lonely and there will be moments where when he's stressed I can't remember what it's called. It's not a piano. You know, the little piano thing, but it's not a piano. Oh, the thing he finds. Yeah, the, he the, finds, the, the, the random yeah. thing that he finds in that bizarre opening scene. When he's stressed, if you watch him, he'll reach out for it. That's like his comfort blanket. Um, and there's lots of little cues, visual and audio cues in the film to just m- to kind of make you aware of how tense and anxious he is at all times. Um, and it's just really clever but it also, like in, in terms of you know me saying this is not your entry level drug to Paul Thomas Anderson, it makes you uncomfortable. It's hard to watch because of that. There is a heart to it, and there is hope that you know these two people can save each other. 
Excellent. Okay. Okay, Graham, over to you. While many of Paul Thomas Anderson's films are so different from one another, another Kubrick trait, uh, he uses a sort of repertory company. Does that work for you? And do you think that this actually raises those actors' game? Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely, it works for me. And I think that it works for all those actors. I'm sure we've talked about this with the Coen brothers who do a similar thing, Tarantino who does a similar thing. I think it's really clear when you watch some directors' filmographies that they develop certain relationships with actors. And as a result, they kind of know each other better and they, they get the most out of each other. So Scorsese and with De Niro and um, DiCaprio, the Coen brothers use the same actors. Tarantino uses the same actors. Wes Anderson's the one for me. And it's almost like those actors and directors develop a shorthand. And I can almost imagine on set that, you know, if he had a brand new fresh actor, there'd be a whole conversation. What are you trying to achieve? You know, let's try this, let's try that. There are probably certain actors who've worked with him so often that they know kind of intuitively what it is that, that they want from each other. One of the saddest ones, I suppose, in this case is Philip Seymour Hoffman, who obviously, you know, sadly passed away um, recently. He's been in five of Anderson's eight films. And I would argue that his best ever performance is in The Master, which is um, a film we haven't yet discussed, but I think we'll probably talk about it shortly. But Hoffman is is brilliant in everything that he's done for Anderson, even like down to, I think, Hard Eight. He had a scene that's about three minutes long. That was it. But you won't forget it, I promise you. And he, he's also had the likes of Joaquin Phoenix, Daniel Day-Lewis and Julianne Moore, who we've mentioned. They've both done a couple of films for him each. And every time it's been a phenomenal performance. You know, who can forget Julianne Moore's coke-fueled scene with um, Heather Graham in Boogie Nights and her um, tirade at a chemist in Magnolia. And even the likes of John C. Riley, who's normally a comic actor, he's done some of his best dramatic work with Anderson as well. So, yeah, I'm all for it. I think it works really well. Deck, any thoughts on that? It's weird. I don't know why this is even a question, really, because why why wouldn't you? I mean, in, in all our works of life, in all our various careers, if, if you've got a team of people that you get on well with and, and click well with, why do you stop working with them? You know, why, why would you create pain and have to go through, you know, you work with these three guys and they're brilliant. I've got to go and get another three. Why would you? Um, I'm, I'm surprised that this is even spoken about because surely it should be commonplace. I mean, I presume it's not commonplace because I presume studios and other people have more of a say and therefore say, no, you've got to, you've got to have this guy because he's, you know, A-lister and we want him, regardless what you think of him, he's got to be in your film. I suspect if you asked any director, they mm, would choose the people definitely. that they like working with. Why wouldn't you? And I've seen in interviews, Paul Thomas Anderson says he considers these people friends. And therefore, why wouldn't work, why wouldn't you work with your friends? That's, you know, I'd love yeah. to work with my friends every day. What, what about you, Jeff, as somebody who's not a friend to anybody? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm best placed to answer this question. That, that's... That's really interesting what you're saying there, Deck, because if you look at his first three films, and particularly the two of Boogie Nights and Magnolia, the people there, you're thinking, right, they're forming a really good relationship. They haven't worked with him again since. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Julianne Moore hasn't worked with him again. William H. Macy hasn't worked with him again. 
you know, these are people, I mean, even Tom Cruise, and I know him and Tom Cruise are, are good friends because uh, he showed Tom Cruise an early cut of the master. Oh, and I'd love to be in a fly on the wall that day. Um, <laughs> so I find that interesting is, is why some of these people are going back because Macy and Moore are just some of the best actors of their generation. If you look at his later films, I don't think that they fit in terms of, I think his his last sort of three films are very much singularly focused with kind of a roving cast around them. So Phantom Fred is basically a two-hander. Inherent Vice is Joaquin Phoenix with lots of people around the periphery. And The Master, again, is a, a two-hander. I, I kind of see where you're coming from, but... Um... But he stopped doing Ensemble, didn't he? He stopped after... He did Boogie Nights and Magnolia, and then he decided, right, I've done that. I can't, I can't keep doing ensemble films because I'll get almost typecast. So he deliberately didn't, and and you can see, and you're right, he's stayed away from ensemble cast. He'll probably go back to it one day. Okay, well, well, let's flip this question on its head then. Which actors and actresses would you like to see Paul Thomas Anderson work with, who he hasn't had in his films to date? I've got a great idea for this because he loves Los Angeles, right? A lot of his films are set in the Valley and he loves Los Angeles. So he could take the greatest actor of his generation, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I'm just i laughing because I just know what Jeff is going to say. <laughs> and, and one of the greatest act- actresses of her generation, Emma Stone. Oh, and he could do a darker toned musical a la 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 Land. Hmm. That'd be great. <laughs> I've no argument on Emma Stone, but two-tone Gosling, no way. Deck. I'd like to see him get back in touch with Leonardo DiCaprio. I'd quite like to see him in a yes, film. Yes, that'd be yes. quite good. Yeah. Um, yes, that would be a good one. You know, he obviously likes him because he tried to get him before, and I think, um, I think, why not? And now Daniel Day-Lewis has retired, uh, make an ideal one to try and get back in there. Speaking of which, uh, I don't know if there's a Tarantino season on in, on Sky, but I think it's last night. I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that was on. And it was literally just at the point where DiCaprio was about to do his Western TV show. Oh, my Lord, DiCaprio is so amazing. That entire 20 minutes is Brad Pitt at the um, ranch and DiCaprio doing the scenes where he's kidnapped the little girl in the Western show. That 20 minutes, half an hour is just phenomenally good. Mm. That's the bounty law stuff, isn't it? It is really mm. quite, quite captivating. I mean, that's Brad Pitt's best ever performance as well, isn't it? By far. Yeah, definitely. Random aside, though. Right. Next up in his filmography is There Will Be Blood, which we spoke about extensively and positively about way back in show 96. Are we all still agreed this is a, a masterpiece? Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now, you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. You will be cast up as the rest of competition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I, I rewatched this because of what happened on show 96. I thought, okay, give it some justice. I'm going to rewatch it because I don't think of it as highly as some of you guys. So I rewatched it and I was blown away again at the beginning. And I think the first half, maybe even two thirds, is phenomenal. The cinematography, you know, you can see why he won the Oscar for this, um, why Robert Ellswick won the Oscar for this, because 
the scenes in the oil fields and that are just fantastic. And and the fact that the film starts with hardly any talking for a long periods of the film, and yet you you understand what's going on. Um, I, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a masterpiece. But and this is a criticism of probably quite a few of Paul Thomas Anderson's films is it just drags a bit. It drags sort of between sort of big half two thirds and and then picks up brilliantly sort of in the last 20 minutes but it, it's that bit where it just loses it loses me i found the same with the master not so much with boogie nights and magnolia because i think because they were ensemble there was lots going on still but i find with a lot of his films they're just too long and i just think and and some people say the same for tarantino films but i don't know for some reason i seem to stay engaged with them even even the long ones whereas this i seem to drift off and, and okay, I wasn't watching it in cinema, but I had seen it in the cinema before. And I remember a bit the same coming out again and feeling disappointed because I started off so well and then it sort of just fell off a cliff and and, and lost me. And okay, the ending was, was good, but I don't know. It's just, and I think that's that's probably my reason why I can't put Paul Thomas Anderson as one of my favourite directors because, as I said near the beginning, I don't watch his films twice because I struggle to get through them impressive as they are and and this is probably true of a lot of stanley kubik films as well not all of them obviously there's some that are brilliant but some of them i find myself again it's just just too long and and just loses me for parts of the film and, that, and that's the only problem i'd have with this i think i mean daniel Day lewis is phenomenal music is phenomenal cinematography is phenomenal i just i don't know it just just loses me so i can't i can't call it a masterpiece I, I understand the words coming out of Deck's mouth. I just don't understand them. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I just, I love this film. I think it's amazing. The only thing I'd say is, is of all his films, my heart would say Magnolia is his best. My head would say that There Will Be Blood is his best. He doesn't put a foot wrong. I think it's genius. But, you know, uh, what Dex said is is valid. And, and actually, the Kubrick thing that Jeff uh, or Neil brought up, I think, right at the top of the show, is probably an important thing to, to talk about there. Because I was talking to somebody else about Kubrick films recently. I love Stanley Kubrick films. I think they're riveting and intense and amazing. And the person I was speaking to just said that they're stale boring and sterile and they just didn't really you know get into them they just got bored that's probably the, the same sort of argument we're having here in, in that that you know there's something for me that makes these films intense and riveting that will make them boring and dull for other people it's still a masterpiece though is it like i said at the start though is it the lack of i know i don't want to use the word story it sounds too dramatic but i do fear these films lack story i can't think of another word um they're very character and i think there are and and the other thing is that the characters aren't nice characters he hasn't got many i can't think of many characters where i think yeah i'd like to go for a drink with that person they're pretty horrible characters most of them you know daniel day lewis's character is capitalist and if other people suffer and he gets success that's good he's not a nice person and you know phantom fred he's not a nice person and i think that's that's one of the reasons I don't like them as much as you know, a lot of Tarantino films. I love the characters. I absolutely love the characters. And I'd love to, you know, sit around a coffee table and talk about Madonna or whatever with them. You know, fantastic. I've got no problem with that. But a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's characters, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near. I mean, you'd actively avoid the main two characters from The Master, right? Yeah, definitely. 
and the ones from There Will Be Blood, to be honest. I wouldn't want to be near either of them. That is a good caveat. If you if you can't enjoy a film because you want to um, latch on to and root for a character, with the exception of perhaps Punch Drunk Love, you'd probably struggle. Okay. Jeff, any thoughts? I do think it's a masterpiece. I take on board everything the deck is saying. Uh, particularly about the characters, you certainly want to want to be around them. I mean, they are representative of the internal battle within America, religion against consumerism. What struck me when I went back and watched it again last year is how hard and edged film it is. You know, it's not that gory, but the gore is ever present yeah. if you really want to look for it. Uh, like the mining accident at the beginning of yeah, the film. Definitely. So, no, I, I, I do think it's a, a stunning piece of work. It's a shame, isn't it? Because he 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 starts to engage. You know, the, at the start, he takes on the, the young lad, and it's you know becomes his son. And okay, he's using him because he he does a good sales job with having his son there. But still, you feel like there's a connection there, and then he just neglects him again, just throws yes. him away, doesn't he? Yeah, and you just think, oh my gosh, you know. And and I think that's probably the point at where it's it, you know major point at where it lost me. The film was at that point, which is probably about two thirds of the way through, I think. And that was probably one of the things that just annoyed me. And you're right, it is the worst of religion against the worst of capitalism, whatever. And and that part of it is interesting. And again, it's it's an interesting thing to study as a film. I mean, it's a beautiful film. It is absolutely beautiful. And the acting is absolutely superb. I, you know, and that's true of a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson films. Those two things you you can't really criticize him on on acting or technical ability at all. But again, I just don't think it's engaging enough. I don't think it's you know, what I want to sit in a cinema and watch, I, you know, yes, to be amazed. And, and that's why I go and see these films. I don't not see them. I always go and see the films because I want to see, you know, a master in, in action. But I very rarely come out of them. I'll come out of them and go, wow. But I won't go, right, I want to go and watch it again. Because, I don't know, it just doesn't doesn't float my boat. I think it's worth watching again for the cinematography. I mean, it really is stunning, isn't it? Um, I've got a slightly different view on this. I've watched it a number of times now. And the scenes with the son and the father, it's you projecting your own humanity onto that relationship. You think, oh, I think he actually does care for that, the son. But he doesn't. Uh, you know, you, he just does not care. It's He's just a selling aid. Yeah, he's he's literally he's only there to serve a purpose. Yeah, he, you know he's got as much relationship with that boy as he has with a flip chart. You know, it's just a selling aid. PR employee. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible, and it speaks volumes. It, it's funny you're saying this because I'm reading Mary Trump's book at the moment, and the whole thing about how Fred Trump controlled that family is just exactly the same as this. He just belittled, disowned, destroyed his own children. Getting back to the films, though, the child who plays H.W. is is really good in this film. And, you know, finding finding good child actors is very difficult and it can ruin a film, can't it? We've all seen films where you think, oh, my God, that, you know, what's that young, you know, oh, you just, you sort of grate your teeth because every scene they're in. The Jungle Book. Yeah, and he's done it. But, the, you know, I've read up that it wasn't, he wasn't even an actor. He was, um, apparently the casting director got called over by Traffic Cop, uh, the woman who was a traffic cop. Her son is H, is the guy who played HW, and they just got talking, and she sort of said, oh, why don't, you know, why don't you try my son sort of thing? And I think he's really good in it. Considering he's playing up against Daniel Day-Lewis, I thought he did phenomenal. And even and the young lad in Magnolia as well, I thought was really good. Paul Thomas Anderson obviously knows how to get 
people to act, even children. So I fair play. I thought that was good. So we come now to a couple of movies I've not seen, and I've heard mixed things about them. So, Phil, what can you say to encourage the rest of the team who haven't seen them, because girly squat Graham's watched one this afternoon, The Master and Inherent Vice? <laughs> After Inherent Vice, I'm, I'm just a fanboy now. I just could not believe that. Do you know what? I'm, I'm intrigued by you saying how much you loved Inherent Vice, because so what I was going to do, I was going to probably spend most of my time telling you about how amazing The Master is. Of the four films that I think are better than Boogie Nights, it's um, Magnolia, The Master, There Will Be Blood, and Phantom Fred. They're the, they're my favourite ones. But I briefly talk about Inherent Vice first because I would put that in the same category as Punch Drunk Love. Of if you've not seen a Paul Thomas Anderson film, do not make this your first one. So Inherent Vice is kind of it's a hard boiled detective story in the vein of Chinatown or The Long Goodbye, but it's the stoner version of that. So you've kind of got kind of the Cohen's Big Lebowski crossed with Altman's The Long Goodbye. I've seen it three times. I'm not totally sure I know what happens in the film. And there's a few things before we started recording that I was talking to Graham about, about like, what do you think happened here? And, and that sort of thing. My one suggestion when you watch it is don't do what I did when I watched it first time and try and work it out. Because when you're watching a hardball detective type film, you want to try and be the detective, right? You want to try and work it out. Do not do that. Just let it flow over you because that will really ruin it for you because it's much more a sense of time and place than it is a detective story. And I'm not convinced it all totally makes sense either. And I think that's kind of part of the point because Joaquin Phoenix's character is so high all the time. I'm not 100% sure what, which bits are actually happening and which bits are kind of a cloud of pot smoke, if you see what I mean. Do you think that's deliberate? Do you think that's deliberate? Do you think he's trying to make the film seem like you're stoned when you're watching it? I, I think so. And, and some of the things you talked about earlier with, with music, I think Anderson's brilliant with his use of music the way that he films things and and the way that the music plays into it I think that's exactly what he's trying to do and that's why I don't think you should watch it trying to work out what it is I think you should watch it and let this um, sense of time and place wash over you and Catherine Waterston and Joaquin Phoenix are just brilliant in it but the master is a masterwork. it is one of Anderson's best films it's ostensibly about Scientology. So it's set just after the Second World War. Joaquin Phoenix is a PTSD-suffering ex-Navy alcoholic, makes homemade <laughs> brews that um, would probably kill the likes of you and I. And Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the master of the film. That's kind of actually one of the main things that we would question, you know, as you watch it. So he's the master of something called The Cause, which is a cult, basically. And his character is very much like um, our Ron Hubbard. There's lots of similarities. But that's kind of where it ends, because that's just the backdrop for the film. I don't think that Anderson is totally interested in diving into the peculiarities of the cult, even though they're there. What he wants to do is he wants to tell a story about 
a titanic tussle between two individuals who are just obsessed with getting their way. And the whole film is about Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix putting on a masterclass of acting, of trying to win this tug of war of who is the master between them. And it's really fascinating. And again, Johnny Greenwood's score comes in and just ratches up tension. And there's some bits in it where um, Hoffman's character is making Phoenix do these tests that are kind of part of the, you know, you have to do these tests to become grand master, lord, whatever of his batshit crazy uh, theology that he's made up. The way that the score kind of has this repetition of these tasks that Phoenix is doing, it kind of makes it frantic and tense, but just the the performances between them, I said earlier on, Philip Seymour Hoffman has never done anything better. And there's one particular scene between him and Amy Adams, who plays his wife, where they're in a bathroom looking into a mirror, which is just like phenomenal, you know, between the two of them. I think it's a great film. I can't wait to watch it. Okay. Dick, anything more you want to add to it? I really don't like The Master. I know Phil and I have disagreed on this before. I just don't like it. I know it's a power play between two characters. I understand all that. I really, really detest it in some ways. Maybe in the next life. If we meet again in the next life, you will be my sworn enemy and I will show you no mercy. Maybe because I'd watched a lot of his others first and so I, so some of his technical stuff I was expecting, so it, I wasn't blown away by it as much. So therefore I was hoping for <laughs> something and I just didn't get it. It just fell flat for me. It really, it, it really did. It really um, I haven't seen Inherent Vice and you're not selling it to me for Phil from what you've said um, and I didn't see it at the time because some of the reviews and things and and I think I was so disappointed with The Master that I've sort of had gone off Paul Thomas Anderson that's why I, I tried I tried to watch Inherent Vice before this but I ran out of time and I tried to watch some of his others to yeah, I, I watched There Will Be Blood again to try and prove myself wrong but I think and the same with Phantom, I saw Phantom Fred. I actually did go and see Phantom Fred. And again, I don't know. I'm losing, I think I'm losing patience with Paul Thomas Anderson. I think I, I really enjoyed his first three, four films. And now he's sort of lost me. And I, I, I don't know whether I'm going to go and see his next film. I'll, I'll watch the trailers and see if it's a subject matter that might interest me a bit more, if it's got maybe more of a story. But I don't know. I just think he... I don't know. He's, he, he has, he's just lost me. Okay. Well, before we move on to the Phantom Thread, Graham, did you want to spurt any more over Inherent Vice or are you finished? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just so captivating. I mean, Phoenix's performance is incredible. He's not in this film. He's somewhere else. But you're watching him. It's just genius his performance and Brolin uh, as well is just off the charts as this just mental cop LA cop and uh, who's you know they've taken out his partner uh, in sort of a gangland hit and you find out the reasons for that and then the CIA are mixed up in it and I agree with, with Phil with Phil I'm gonna watch it again because the first time I watched it, it just flowed over me and now I want to really start 
digging into it because I just found everybody in it was fascinating and all the mental stuff that was going on and there were a lot of doors <laughs> you'll be pleased to know deck in this and people really pick, he goes through doors oh yeah he goes through a lot of doors kicking doors down going into big offices and you know things happening behind closed doors and and, and secret doors and all of this sort of stuff it, and again he has cults in this and he has strange chinese people and the weird and, dental association and the weird dental place is just <laughs> bonkers the guy who plays the saxophonist in it, um, Owen Wilson. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Owen Wilson is good. I mean, yeah. nobody would ever say that in, in normal life. But in this, he's he's very strange and he's just totally stoned all the time. It's like a um, stoner Poirot, really, at points. I just, I just found it because I had no idea what I was going to watch. I just sat down and I thought, well, this is started from a strange place, and then it just goes off. And I thought, I'm, I'm <laughs> in for this. I'm in for the ride, and it gets weirder and weirder. And it did remind me of the Big Lebowski. And you're selling, you're selling it better than Phil was, Graham. I must it admit. Is, so it is. You know, there are. I mean, there's elements of Charles Manson in it. The music is razor sharp. I mean, the music, the way he fits the music and you get vibes from the 50s at certain points and then you get the 60s and it's the late 60s it's set in and then you, so you're starting to get this new music of neil young and there's two incredible neil young tracks in it big fan of neil young as well so that really uh, pulled me right in and then there was this whole thing about the cia trying to get the mafia out of uh, las vegas by putting their own corrupt killers in to run hotels in in las vegas it was just what a piece of genius idea that was and then every time they meet with the cia the cia guys are having problems with their noses because they've all been taking coke <laughs> and time with coke and it's and you think what's oh i get it yeah and then people's teeth keep falling out because heroin pulls the calcium out of your bones so your teeth fall out and it's just like what this is it's an education and it's fun and it's bonkers but it is two and a half hours longer it is two and a half hours long and i didn't notice i it. do apologize listeners i should have given you a spoiler alert before all of that but clearly <laughs> to be to be honest jeff it's not a spoiler because there's so much going on and it doesn't all necessarily come together or make sense. It's kind of the point is that there's just all these things that are like thrown at you and you can make as much sense of it as an incredibly stoned detective who's like just more interested in, in drugs than he is the case. And the one point where he actually is quite clever, you think, oh, he actually did something very clever there. And then it all goes into sort of like an action movie and then that's all over. Okay. And he's just left sitting in his kitchen with piles of drugs around him. And it's just the juxtaposition is hysterical. So Graham, have you you've not seen the master yet then, have you? No, no. That, can I'm, you I'm, can you do me an, can you do me a favor on the experiment when you do your watch list? Can you watch it last and see whether you go through the same thing that I do where you start to go off <laughs> all Thomas Anderson films and by the time you get to the master you really don't enjoy it. I'd I'd be interested to know whether that happens to someone else or whether it's just me. Well, uh, when you you, yes, when you earlier on when you said there's a little dip 
in uh, There Will Be Blood just before the end, I found that in the fandom thread. You know, I'm, I'm raving over this film, but I'm, the next one, Phantom Thread, I'm not so sure. Okay, well, let's touch on that Phantom Thread. Daniel Day-Lewis's final film, he has now retired. It starts as an English period drama set in the 1950s, but by the end it's become something much, much darker. Now, Deck, you say you didn't enjoy this film. Is that the film or the performances or both that did that for you? No, no. I mean, as I've been, you know, I've been quite repetitive, I think, on this podcast, but I think the performances and the beauty of the film is amazing. Um, it's, it's stunning. And, you know, the, 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 the dressmaking and everything is just phenomenal. But it just loses me and I lose interest. I wasn't captivated as much as I should be when I'm watching a film. Okay. Phil, in its defence... Yeah, I mean, so I again, I love this one. I think this is you know top tier Anderson, and, and again, it's um, the things that I was going to talk about again. So we we kind of have this weird dysfunctional family. The main character is so damaged by the loss of his mother that he he kind of struggles to have relationship with women that isn't his sister, um, and the whole kind of like fashion house backdrop and him being a master at creating dresses, et cetera. That's just, that's kind of like the porn industry and boogie nights. That's not the story that he's telling. The story that he's telling is about the uh, sort of toxic relationships that he has with women um, and how his sister kind of like disposes of, the, of them for him when he's kind of got bored sort of thing. But he meets his match. So it's kind of then you kind of have these story thread from the master where the master's about these two kind of, titanic figures tussling with each other well what happens here is he meets someone who understands him so implicitly that she actually can challenge him and she's the only person in the film who does other than his sister you get to see the back end of one of his relationships with a woman where she's just kind of doesn't challenge him at all and and what you see with his new um, love, with Vicky Kreps, who plays her, who I don't think I've seen in anything else, and she's really good here. I mean, if you can stand up and and challenge Daniel Day Lewis for best person in a film, I think that really says something. And and this relationship is um kind of a back and forth where they're kind of almost fighting for power, and they actually it's 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 so implicit that they find a way that they can keep renewing their love by actually fighting with each other, but through another mechanism. I don't know how to put it without giving it away for people who, who want to go and see it. It's a different form yeah, of abuse, and, isn't it, really? But it's it's lovingly done. It's kind of like a, a dom-sub kind of relationship, I suppose, to some extent. It's just really nuanced, and there's all this weird <laughs> weirdness about when he's a hungry boy, he's kind of happy and intrigued and when he's not hungry if you watch the film he like turns away food when he's miserable not not interested in the relationship but he's very hungry when he is um it's a bit of a weird (laughs) um thing but i i thought it was great and daniel day lewis and vicky kreps are are just brilliant in it yeah it's funny you say about the food because that breakfast scene is phenomenal i mean that that breakfast scene yeah where he yes what he orders for breakfast uh, just explains yeah. his character and and 
yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's, it's very good. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm putting downers on these films towards the end of this podcast, but I, you've got to remember, as I said at the start, these are still head and shoulders better than a lot of films other directors make. If you sort of mean, it's just, I think, as I said, my expectations in the first two or three films I watched were risen so high that I'm nitpicking because I'm expecting him to get better almost, and it, and he's not, and and so. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to justify myself so I'm not coming as a downer because I think if you watched some of his later films first, you'd probably be blown away by them because you're not expecting his his ability, his creativeness that he brings to films. Um, I just think I've been worn down by them a bit. And maybe, I mean, yes, I still see scenes in his films that I think are incredible, but a lot of it I've seen before. I actually thought, interesting in this film, I actually thought every scene that Leslie Manville was in was better than when she wasn't in it. I actually thought she was fantastic in it. Oh, she was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you, Graham, uh, agree with Deck on this, don't you? Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson did the cinematography in this one himself. The filming inside the house and all of that is fantastic. And it does require an awful lot of attention. You've got to pay an awful lot of attention. But the end, just I just did not get that that piece about how they used abuse to strengthen their relationship through food. And it was just, I just found that very odd. The plotting maybe or the pacing, something was off with this film. I'll have to watch it again. I mean, I'm going to be interested in your view of The Master now you've said that, Graham, because you seem to be, I mean, I haven't seen Inherent Vice, but you seem to be aligning yourself similar to me. So I'll be interested to know what you think of The Master. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I'm a bit conflicted. I should have watched all these bloody films, but strange things have happened. I've just missed them. And now I've watched Inherent Vice and I've watched There Will Be Blood Again and Boogie Nights. And I'm thinking, this guy's a bloody genius. Why why haven't I seen all of this? This is really good. He, I actually, you know, this is going to be a very hippie thing to, to say, but, you know, I, I think I get him, what he's trying to say, you know. And it's just, I just need to go back and watch it again, maybe, and... Uh, take more notes because I wrote what, one, two, three, four, five pages of notes on inherent advice because it just kept things just, I kept seeing things and going, oh, that's bloody brilliant. Oh, that's great. You know, and the, the, we talked about the cinematography, the cinematographer for, um, for inherent vice was, oh God, what was his name again? Robert Ellsworth. He does the worst cinematography ever deliberately because he's stoned as well in the film right there are shots in in inherent vice where he cuts people's heads off you can't see them talking you can hear them but you can't see them and it uh, and it's shot at floor level when it should be up and you think oh he's got it as well he's stoned the cinematographer so the whole thing is off kilter and now I've, I'm starting to think, right, I keep watching that, I keep watching the plot, and keep watching these points, watching destructive traits in people and all of this sort of thing. Here's a common theme, and I'm going to have to go back and watch the whole, all of it again. Okay. So I'm conscious of time and looking to bring this towards an end. Um, but, Neil, I've got to ask you, and based on everything you've heard tonight, and you've only seen one of them, which one will you watch next? Well, I think... I, I, I... The one that people have gushed about, what well, Graham has gushed about, inherent vice. I think <laughs> I'm going to have to just, you know, to keep up um, and take some notes. I guess to coin a phrase, 
I agree with Graham. Carry on. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I guess I guess Boogie Nights is the one I also have to watch. I've watched There Will Be Blood. Again, I don't know about The Master really, or or the uh, um, what was the other one? Um, Phantom Thread. Not too sure about those ones. Boogie Nights and Inherent Vice. I'll watch probably Inherent Vice first. So we've got a new film coming later this year, and I believe they're trying to get it out in December for awards. It's tentatively entitled Soggy Bottom. It's said to be about a child actor in the 1970s, again, back to that Boogie Nights period. Although rumour has it the film is actually about the making of the 1976 version of A Star Is Born. Nice irony if that's true, because Bradley Cooper's in it, and allegedly he's playing um, Star Is Born producer John Peters. So, Phil, what have you heard about the movie? And are you looking forward to it? Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm looking forward to it. I think you've heard me gush about Paul Tom Sanderson for quite a while now. Um, uh, so I, I know nothing about the plot, actually. So you saying that it's rumoured to be about uh, the making of A Star is Born is actually news to me. But the thing that I do know and I'm interested in is back to this repertory company and friends situation in terms of the cast, because... Um, the lead of the film is um, Cooper Hoffman, which is the yes. son of Philip Seymour yes, Hoffman. That's right. So obviously that's an intriguing prospect because I don't think that he's been in anything, or at least I'm no. not aware of anything no. that he's been he's, in. He's playing the child actor. Yeah, so obviously um, you know that goes some way to the friendship that Anderson obviously had with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, you've mentioned Bradley Cooper, who hasn't been in in one of these one of Paul Tom Sanderson's films before, but I think he's a really good actor. And then there's two other really intriguing choices. So he's got Benny Safdie, who is one of the Safdie brothers who directed Uncut Gems. So I don't know if that's because you know Anderson's still friends with Adam Sandler, and Adam Sandler like obviously introduced them, or they just know each other because they're directors in the same sort of circle. So that's quite an intriguing one. Um, and then we mentioned that he um, has directed Haim's music videos probably for the last two, three years. And one of the band members, Alana, is um, starring in this one as well. So it's kind of a mixture of all his different linkages that we've talked about before. There's no one that has been in his films before, but they are kind of connections through you know, his work generally. Yeah, and um, So I'll be, I'll be intrigued. I'll, I'll be... I'll be there front and centre to watch. And Alana Haim has more than a passing resemblance to Barbara Streisand. Mm, interesting. Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, I'll be interested if it is about that, because that would be an incredibly odd choice. I mean, the, the thing that I kind of saw it as is um, it's meant to be set in Los Angeles again, and, and we know from you know his previous films that he loves you know that area and, and it's inspirational for I'm just me. looking at um, rumours and stuff. It's rumoured to be called The Night of Counting the Years. Yeah, it's gone under different all sorts of different mm. titles. The last I saw was Soggy Bottom, but who knows what's going on there. So, wrap up for everybody then. And, you know, whatever we take from his films, he's definitely willing to take chances. So, what genre of film would you like him to tackle in the future? Dick, I'll start with you. Well, originally um, I was going to say horror because because of his use of sound and colour and tracking shots, I think it would make for a really interesting horror film. But then after watching his music videos, and especially the anima one, 
um, I thought actually mm. sci-fi would be a good one. Um, you know, I, I saw the influences in that and thought actually in a futuristic world, it would be interesting. But part of me leans towards horror, but that's probably less likely that he's going to do that. So I would say I'd quite like okay. to see him do sci-fi. Great. Anything. Absolutely <laughs> anything. I would. I, I, I don't care. I'm at this point. I'm. I'm so besotted. I, I'd watch him produce somebody reading the um, the telephone directory. It's just give me some more. That's what I'm saying at the minute. Just I don't care what it is. Just give me some more, and I'll do the same stuff. And if he had the mel in it, you'd be there like a shot. I'd, absolutely. Thanks, yeah, Jeff. That's right. just Neil. I. I don't know. I think sort of Western type drama with he obviously does um people and he does actors it'd be very interesting in a western setting and he and he's obviously got a cinematographer as well a decent cinema a very good cinematographer so that would be very interesting i think okay and last word to you phil so i mentioned musical earlier on and i think i think that would be great but i would like to see him do a gangster film mm. because He's covered the 50s in um, uh, The Master and he covered anxiety in um, Punch Drunk Love and that kind of crazy fall from grace in Boogie Nights. I think if you brought all of those together um, and you had a really good gangster film, like period gangster film, sort of either go 20s or 50s or something like that, I'd love to see him do like a... a once upon a time mm. in America type thing. You could have a nice four hour film. Right. They're all good choices. I think um one thing I like about this and say I do like his films is it's created a lot of really interesting debate. And to our listeners out there, I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you've got any comments about Paul Thomas Anderson, please send them in. It's all it's always a pleasure, Phil. And I'm really pleased we we uh, had a long chat about it. It, it was well worth it. So Uh, As we said in the beginning, where can people find your article? So I am philthebearblog.wordpress.com. And if you go onto the front of that page and click on features, you will see all of my director retrospectives there. Excellent. Now I hear through the grapevine, you're working on a new retrospective. Anything you can tell us about it? I am. And it's because of my number one Twitter fan deck suggested but I should do a female director. Um, so I am, I think it's seven films out of 10 into Catherine Bigelow's. Uh, uh, yeah. Well done. Good choice, Phil. Good choice. So yeah, um, uh, I, that, I have some very strong views on some of her films. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that should make it interesting. So yeah, that, that would be fun. Um, I'm hoping I mean, given that cinemas are shut, I'm hoping that I'll be able to have that out in the next few weeks because uh, I've only got three to go and then I've just got to do a bit of writing. Excellent. Okay, guys, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, I'm sure we'll play out with some appropriate music. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks, guys. Cheers.